Today on The Black Goat, we talk about how the replicability crisis will age and how future scientists and historians will view the current moment in science, and a letter about disclosing a disability when applying for jobs. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. And Alexa, you're looking quite healthy and glowing and vibrant, but I gather that hasn't been (laughs) your weekend? (laughs) Yes, I'm hiding a a deep secret, which is that um, on the weekend, I actually injured myself sort of seriously. Um, but the story is pretty good. So I thought I would share the story with the entire world. Um, so an unfortunate thing about, um, the times when I tend to get sort of bad injuries are that they're usually a consequence of me doing something dumb. Um, and this is no exception. Uh, so, (laughs) so basically I was, um, I went to a town that's about 45 minutes away from Tuscaloosa called Greensboro, um, with Samin and Riley to um, eat pie and also like check out this park that um, is really nice in Greensboro. And so this like entire park has like all of these like uh, exercising machines and like a playground. It's designed by the architecture students at Auburn University. So there's like a lot of like cool things to climb on or whatever. So like I made it through the entire like park (laughs) fine. Um, But we got to the end of the park and we were like about to go home and there are these like benches and tables that are made of like concrete blocks um and so just such a little bit of background i used to like uh sometimes like work out at parks and like use like uh picnic benches um as like props to do like box jumps on and stuff and so i was like I wonder if <laughs> if I could still do a box jump onto something that's like about the height of a picnic table um so i waited till Samina and Riley weren't really paying attention to me because I thought that there was like a chance that this could go badly. Um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, you sort of know where this is going at this point. I, I tried to do a box jump onto a cement block. And, as high as a picnic table. Yeah, and didn't quite get high enough. So basically my toes caught the corner, but I couldn't pull myself up and then ended up... This <laughs> I should like uh, maybe put like a a trigger warning or something because it's kind of a gross story um scraped my knee or my shins on the way down and then fell on my ass and so like oh. basically like i was like you know as soon as i fell on my ass and, me and I was, Riley were both like wait go ahead yeah so i was like trying to post a photo of the park to instagram and i saw you fall and i was like oh my god are you okay and you're like yeah i'm fine and so i thought oh well i don't want to embarrass you by exactly like, paying more attention which is exactly what I wanted you, how I wanted you to react. So I was like, oh, I fell on my ass. This is embarrassing. And I knew that I had like scraped my legs, but I wasn't like too worried about it. Um, and then and actually, then Riley was yeah. Like- and then Riley was like, was like, why would you try to do a box jump onto this? And then he like sort of like tried to judge it. And then he he did it. And you know, and he did. You were like encouraging fine. him to. Do it. You're like. Yeah, I don't know. We're both no, like, I yeah, wasn't you... because I knew okay. he would be able to do it, and I didn't yeah, want yeah. him to do it and me not to do it. <laughs> He's taller than me. I think fair. maybe I was encouraging him to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so yeah, he did it fine. Um, <laughs> but anyways, like he then he was started to talk about something else. Both of you were trying not to embarrass me, um, and as he was talking, I was just like could not concentrate on what he was saying, and I was like, my legs really hurt. And then I looked <laughs> down, and there's like blood everywhere. <laughs> Um, so anyways, like I pulled up my pant leg and it turned out that I had pretty bad cuts on my legs. Um, and Simeon and Riley told me that, uh, I needed to go to a hospital, um, which I thought was not true, but it turns out it's pretty true. I think that I did need to Definitely, go to the hospital. Absolutely. Um, true. so we ended up going to, um, the Hale County hospital, um, which Riley at first thought was called Hell County hospital, which made him really concerned, <laughs> but just Hale, H-A-L-E, um, and yeah so anyways i go into see the doctor and um another aside so i've been recently talking to my brother about like nursing and doctor etiquette because my brother just became a nurse he just passed his nursing exam so congratulations to logan um but uh he was telling me that there are these like rules for nurses and doctors for like 
like appropriate ways to interact with um, patients that sometimes are not very realistic. And he was saying that one of them is like, you should never ask um, a patient why they did something that caused them to get an injury, I guess, because it seems like you're judging them. (laughs) So anyways, uh, so I'm like talking to this doctor and this doctor is like a really like a character. Like, first of all, he's, like, not wearing scrubs. He's wearing, like, black pants and a tight black T-shirt. And he looks like Sylvester Stallone. And he has giant biceps and, like, huge (laughs) tattoos. Um, And then, so he was like, so what happened? Um, And I said, well, like, I was, you know, I was being dumb. And, like, I tried to jump onto, like, a concrete (laughs) table and, you know, like, and I scraped my legs. And he was like why (laughs) and I was like I don't know like parkour (laughs) I still can't believe you said that Um, I asked Riley if he was embarrassed to be with you at that moment yes (laughs) Riley has literally told everyone I know this story like I'll like run into people and I'll like be ready to tell them the story because it's a kind of a good story Um, and they will already know about it and they'll have like a picture of the doctor on their phone that Riley has already texted to them (laughs) did they know the parkour part of the story I don't know if I don't know if everybody knows the parkour part of the story Um, so also earlier that day we had been joke- like yeah. laughing about an email I got on my next door email listserv that was the subject line was would anyone be interested in free adult parkour classes and so we've been laughing about that so I feel moderately responsible for I, both I you can... trying to jump on that block <laughs> and your answer to the doctor when he asked you why the only thing I can think of is that episode of the office where they're running around doing parkour do you guys know that one we're gonna yeah that's 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 gonna be the gif for this episode I wonder if we can post a picture of your doctor I don't think he's identififiable in the one no I not at all it's a picture of his back yeah maybe just fuzz out his face and close up on his bicep yeah <laughs> that, that would not be a problem it's a yeah it's a good picture um also when so when alexa was in there the i was waiting outside the hospital because i get really queasy in hospitals and also she had riley so i was sitting out there and a, there was a nurse i think nurse maybe doctor but i think nurse standing out there and he was like what you don't want to see your friend get stapled and I was like, no. I was like, does it hurt? He's like, of course it hurts. It hurts like hell. And I was like, but they don't, don't they give her like local anesthetic? He's like, yeah, but it still hurts. So then for the next like hour and a half, I was like, couldn't concentrate because I was like, Alexa's in like so much pain uh, right now. It's so terrible. These doctors and nurses at Hell Hospital just sound <laughs> like. <laughs> but apparently it's a lie. Apparently. Yeah. So though, it doesn't hurt like uh, hell. I don't know if this is like really the moral that I'm supposed to take from this story, <laughs> but the whole experience was surprisingly painless. Like even like scraping my legs in a pretty bad way, like didn't really hurt that much, which is probably why I didn't realize that it was like a serious cut. Um, and then like the staple thing, I mean, they give you the getting the anesthetic is a little painful because they're like, you know, sticking you with a needle uh, in a place that's pretty sensitive. Um, but then, but it's not worse than getting a tattoo, I don't think. Um, and then the staples, you don't feel at all because of the local anesthetic. So, but despite the fact that you don't feel them, I still almost passed out at the just the concept of the fact that somebody was putting staples into my body. <laughs> I was really proud of myself for being tough for the anesthetic because... You were tough um, the whole time. Thank you. But I feel like almost fainting undermines your toughness. <laughs> no. No. I mean, I uh, couldn't even hang out in the hospital. I didn't have an injury. <laughs> I wouldn't have been I, hanging I, out there if I had an option. We, maybe we do need to put a trigger warning on this. I'm feeling like a little like, yeah. like vertigo I remember or something. When we were driving home, like we could, like I wanted to talk about it too. Like I wanted to hear all about it, but then like I'd be driving and be like, okay, we got to change the subject now. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Maybe we do. Because I think, yeah, the power of imagination is strong. No. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're still alive yeah. and can still walk and all that. Yeah. And I'm glad Thank that you. your legs are out of the picture on our Skype chat. <laughs> <laughs> it looks a lot better now than it did before. Yeah. Oh, man. So, uh, are you, you're normally supposed to box jump onto like something plastic that falls over if you do it wrong, right? Is that sort of the idea? I don't think I've ever box jumped onto something that was made for the the purpose of box jumps. So Okay. So probably Because you, 
Because you learned how to do box jumping in parkour, adult parkour class. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's part of the parkour spirit, you know? (laughs) I did not try the box jump because when I was in seventh grade, I was on the track team. And all of a sudden, overnight, I just started being deathly afraid of hurdles. And I just would not try to jump over a hurdle again. And ever since then, I basically am a wuss about anything like that. I think I might that might happen to me now. Yeah. Yeah. I've also never had any stitches. So. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah. All right. Well, should we uh, should we do our letter? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do our letter. Right. Uh, Dear the black goat, I'm currently a postdoc and I have applied for jobs a couple of times. Despite this experience, I always struggle with how to handle the fact that I have a disability. Specifically, I am legally blind. In my past applications, I chose not to mention in my, uh, sorry, not to mention it in my cover letter, diversity statements, or any application materials beyond the simple HR questions in the application. I am certain that it is something that my letter writers bring up, which I think relieves me of the burden of trying to find a natural spot to include it in my application. Typically, I have discussions about my disability when I reach the interview stage. I don't mind discussing it, but I never could figure out the best protocol of when to bring it up. My question. Should I keep up this strategy for future applications, or should I be more upfront about the whole thing? Signed, the mostly able postdoc. I think this is really tough. I don't have a strong inclination or like gut feeling. Do you guys? <laughs> yeah, I think this is a great question, and I also don't. I don't know if I have um, a helpful answer to this question. Actually, I'm hoping that Sanjay does. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I should say that, yeah, none of us have a lot of experience in this realm. And so if anything we say is wrong or misguided, or if there are just things people want to add, it would be great if people send us a letter or respond when this comes out on social media or something, because it would be great to sort of, if this, if, if we're not giving a good answer or a complete answer for this to be the start of a yeah. conversation rather than us trying Definitely. to be authoritative we could talk about guess, our experience being on search committees but yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I think the two things you know as i was as i was reading this it wasn't it wasn't entirely clear to me that the person who wrote the letter seemed comfortable with the idea of them knowing like they mm-hmm. they describe how the letter writers are probably well they say i'm certain that the letter writers are disclosing it so they're aware that the that is being disclosed they bring it up in the interview stage, and and they don't mention any concerns. I mean, when I when I read this, I thought of sort of like, what are the potential consequences of a search committee knowing versus not knowing? Um, you know, uh, a downside, I guess, <clears throat> is there's a risk of invoking discrimination, right? That um, you know, some potential hirer search committees might be like. You know, they might have wrong or incorrect ideas about what it means to hire someone with a disability. They might think, oh, we, you know, they might have just negative stereotypes and things like that, prejudice, and they they might be like, let's let's not. Um, uh, and you know, the flip side, and in particular, like, you know, the the letter writer wrote specifically, I chose not to mention in my cover letter diversity statements or application materials, and you know, the diversity statement include me in as well, in particular, you know, places that are requesting those, which is more and more, those are a place where you can talk about how you can serve different kinds of students and populations and colleagues and that kind of thing. And if oneself having a disability gives you some knowledge and experience in the issues faced by students with disabilities or in you know, working with participant populations with disabilities or things like that, that can potentially be an asset, right? That you can say, you know, I myself have a disability and as a result of this, I've learned a lot about, you know, um, how to, you know, how to serve disabled students. Um, and so that that would be something that could potentially be a plus. And, you know, um, so that might be a way to to frame it. And, yeah. I, you know, I feel like the, the larger conversation that's been going about diversity statements, um, there's a lot of, I think, uh, is there a, <laughs> I feel like the term pearl clutching is too gendered. Is there a, like, less gendered <laughs> version of pearl clutching? The, like, 
just the sort of like gasping and whatever that that uh, you know people. Oh my God, these diversity statements. This is just PC run, run amok. Like we we ask participants or sorry, we ask uh, applicants to submit diversity statements for our jobs and. You know, when I read those, I'm I'm reading it as like, how well is this person going to be doing at the actual job? So it's not just like, tell me you're a minority and then we're going to hire you or whatever. Um, it's, you know, we're really looking at like how, you know, we have to serve diverse students and we have to, as psychologists, we have to study diverse people. And so, you know, how do your professional experiences and accomplishments as well as when their relevant personal experiences play into that? Um, and I feel like this would potentially, I mean, this person doesn't say in the letter to us anything other than that they themselves are disabled, but it's almost always going to be the case that they're going to have experience and knowledge that are going to be relevant to being effective with students and participants and colleagues and things like that, that that, you know, that knowledge and experience could be an asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This letter sort of highlights for me, too, the fact that this this process sort of puts like a weird burden, both in the case of uh, the, these kinds of disabilities, but also um, any kind of diversity um, on applicants. So, I mean, I feel like we also end up in these like strange situations where we have job applicants. And as the search committee, we're trying to like figure out if they might be a minority in some way based on like their name or like searching for them online or something like that. And it just feels like such a like, such an unsystematic, um, like unprofessional process. And like thinking about it also from the perspective of the applicant, I do feel like there's this weird expectation that like, oh, maybe you'll like raise um, this issue in your in your um, application material somehow. But then there's this weird burden of how you bring that up in a way that seems like relevant and not like you are, I don't know, trying to claim like more uh i don't know a specific status or something like that like that claim that you deserve special consideration um yeah it's very it's a very odd system that we have that's very like unsystematic Mm. and um subjective yeah i think it's very reasonable and accurate for people to worry that it's a double-edged sword yeah there might be ways in which it helps the process and helps everyone be more open and know everything but there are definitely ways in which it could hurt an applicant i think that's a completely realistic concern to have mm-hmm. i agree that like if if you were going to bring it up i think the diversity statement would be the most relevant place to do it so that's yeah that when i'm torn my advice would be either don't bring it up or bring it up in the diversity statement if if those are the ways you're leaning initially if you really want to if it's relevant to other parts of your application you want to bring it up i i would never tell someone not to but um but if you're like, I, so far I haven't been bringing it up, should I consider bringing it up somewhere? Then I would say, yeah, consider bringing it up in the diversity statement, but it's also fine not to. And I think it's completely realistic to be worried that it might yeah. do more I also, harm than good. Like, I think that um, the letter writer strategy of um, relying on their letter, sorry, yeah, their letter mm-hmm. writers, their recommenders um, to bring these things up is I I think it can be really useful um, because it gets around this like this challenge of bringing it up in a way that seems like relevant and um, and puts that burden on your recommenders, which I think is fine. Yeah, I I think um, so. I think I think everything you guys said is fine. I have a slightly different. So I I, I think. I think you know letting your letter writers talk about it is fine, and I would I would have an explicit conversation with them if if mm-hmm. I was in this situation um, because I'd you know I'd want to and it obviously depends on the letter writer and your relationship. So maybe you already know this, but I'd want to make sure that they were bringing it up in the right way and not the wrong way, right? Mm-hmm. Like you know people can people can talk about disability and really without intending to in really sort of diminishing ways or or you know, just sort of inappropriate ways. So I'd want to make sure I trusted not only that my letter writers were bringing it up and that I wanted them to, but that, you know, I sort of trusted them to do it in the right way. But I also, I sort of feel like, um, you know, like a, a, maybe this is the wrong comparison, but like an example of where you let a letter writer bring something up that you don't yourself is like when students are applying to grad school and let's say their, you know, their quant GRE score is low, um, but their letter writer knows that they're really good at stats. And so, and, and in that case, it's like, 
the reason you do that is you're not making excuses. It do, you don't want it to sound like you're making excuses for yourself. And I'm I'm a little I don't I don't think this necessarily has to be the same thing, but I'm a little hesitant to sort of treat disability as a like a thing you have to make excuses for um, uh, or to, to approach it the same way you would. Now, there may be other reasons why you might let a letter writer bring it up and not yourself. But, you know, um, you know, like would would you bring up, you know, racial ethnic minority status in that way? Say, let my letter writers say, you know, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But um, or being a sexual minority or other things. Um, and there, there's a part of me that sort of feels like if you, and it's not clear from the letter writer who wrote to us why they would want to bring it up. They just say, I'm struggling whether or not, maybe they're trying to figure out the reasons, but if there's a way to bring it up that is relevant to the work you're going to do, if, if it's a place that asks for a diversity statement, that's the place to do it. But I would say a cover letter is also a totally fine way to say, you know, something you should know about me is that I have this disability. This is, you know, made me better at my job in, you know, assuming that this is true in the following ways, that I, I have more than the average amount of knowledge of issues faced by all kinds of disabled students, not just myself, because of these experiences I've had, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I would like, I would say I wouldn't hesitate to if it if it is an asset, if it can be framed as an asset, the experiences that come from it, you know, that why not bring it up? Um, but I, I do think the the risk of sort of the the worry about discrimination is is real, and and I think the simply mentioning it without a like in the letter giving a reason why you're mentioning it, like oh by the way, and not that anyone would do this, right? But you say oh by the way, I'm you know, I'm Indian. Oh, by the way, I'm disabled. Oh, by the way, whatever. And just leaving it as a statement, I could see how you might worry reasonably that a reader is going to go like, why is this person mentioning this? Mm -hmm. Um, But if if the disclosure has the reason built into it, it makes, you know, it's given me these experiences that will be useful to my job for XYZ. I think that feels more effective. And, And it's hard to know that with the discrimination stuff, sometimes people have these ideas and they meet you and they realize like, oh, I have the stereotypes of what it means to be blind. And actually this person, you know, it, once I meet them, it's like, oh, this is a real entire person and, and whatever. And, and I get over that. But other times it's like, if they're going to discriminate, they're going to find out sooner or later. So let them know up front and, you know, they can, you know, um, you know, like you're not, if, if it's a place that's just a toxic environment, then you're not going to end up working there or wanting to work there anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really tough situation. Yeah. I hope the situation changes because I think that's yeah. the only real answer to this is that right. the discrimination has to get better so that it's not this really impossible calculation for applicants to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I would, yeah, this is, this is definitely something where I I would love to hear from people listening who have experience in this area because I I this is one of those things where I feel like I could be totally off base like there I'm sure there are people with experience and and you know who've who've dealt with these kinds of issues who have some sense of where the balance lies in these issues of the reasons why you might disclose versus not disclose so hopefully people will write to us. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe consider this an open invitation if you're listening and, and you have knowledge or expertise in this area. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, well, thank you to the Mostly Able postdoc for your, uh, that was their, their email signature. Uh, thanks for sending us this letter. Really interesting. And, yeah, if you're listening, you want to email us about this or just about anything else. Our email address is letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod, where we will not be posting pictures of Alexa's shins. <laughs> um, but maybe maybe your doctor. Um, <laughs> did you get a picture of the concrete table? Like No. Uh, no. It's probably it probably had like blood and gore like scraped all down the corner or something. Maybe we shouldn't show that anyway. 
Um, and our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. All right. So for our main topic today, this is something we've said, we've kind of we've talked about this as a possibility before, but uh, also we had someone wrote in and, and suggested this as a topic. Um, the sort of future history of the reform movement, I guess, is is maybe what we wanted to to talk about. The, this idea of like you know, where the field has been changing a lot in the last like seven, eight years. And, and, you know, um, it's going to continue to change, we think, in terms of open science and replicability and statistical reform, which we've talked about previously with our uh, episode with Fiona Fiddler. And so this question of sort of what will this moment in history look like when we look back on it? And um, there's also there's a cool article we should post in the show notes that Bobby Spellman wrote kind of talking about the, the future history of uh, reform um, as well as the history history of reform. But uh, um, yeah, like what what will things look like? And I think it would be interesting maybe to cycle through a couple different frames, but like 10 years from now. So 2029, when we're looking back on the 20 teens and what? the field look like or you know 30 years from now 50 years from now what are people going to be saying i think one interesting question is whether this will have been a distinct movement or whether it'll be just one branch of a broader movement like the open science movement more generally because i feel like the replicability thing or credibility thing in psychology is only part like it overlaps with the open science movement but it's also distinct because it's about also like quality of evidence not just transparency um and it overlaps with the statistical reforms that have been going on for decades. And also it overlaps with like diversity and inclusion reforms and like Me Too and things like that. Like I think it's really like part of the push for openness and transparency is to have more accountability and a more level playing field and things like that. So there's all these things happening right now. And this is one of one piece I don't know if it's a part of those broader movements or if it's a separate movement and I think it'll be interesting to see when we look back on it whether we think of like psychology's replicability crisis or credibility revolution or whatever was that its own thing or was that just part of a bigger thing Mm -hmm. right or something that doesn't have like a distinct end point right Mm -hmm. like I think there have been times in the past when um there has been like a push for greater consideration of whatever right like power for instance um where it's felt like this like moment that like came and passed and i guess like we're sort of all hoping that this isn't one of those things but something that like is just like the starting point for continuing like gradual improvements Mm -hmm. um yeah right Yeah, yeah and i i feel like the like why the question why did this happen now you know why did it happen in the first place which we talked about a little bit with Fiona um, in that previous episode and you know I think technology is a big part of the explanation of why and why now right that we're we're now able to um, you know we can make things more open than we could previously, right? So, so you know, it's like, I think if, if you've grown up around a lot of technology um, and didn't experience an earlier period in, in the field, it, it feels weird, like, and, and why are people, like, why aren't people sharing data? And, you know, the answer is, like, we didn't have the technology to really do it on the, the scale that we can now, like, pre-digital, you know, how would you share data widely? Like if it was a small enough data set, maybe you could publish it in a journal, but like that was kind of a waste of paper. Journal pages were very expensive. Um, and they're, you know, pre-internet, which was really only the 90s that kind of the world started using the internet broadly. Um, you know, there weren't these sort of electronic distribution channels. So I think that's, you know, that's one part of it. Um, and the technology isn't going away. And that's, that's one of the ways in which I think that what's going on in psychology and even in the sciences generally is interfacing with what's going on in the rest of society with industry and government and other things, just having lots more data out there. Um, but, you know, another thing, and it's really interesting to me that you brought up the diversity and inclusion issues, because this is something that Bobby talks about in her article, is demographic change. 
that some of it is like age and generation and you know younger people being more used to technology but some of it is also just the field is diversifying and you know slowly and not enough um, but it is diversifying I think it's doing better with respect to gender than it is with respect to some other things like race and ethnicity um, but you know you you have this kind of um, I think a, a result of that is you have people who aren't necessarily bought into certain power structures or certain ways of gaining prestige, and so they're more open to doing things differently. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting. The I think this is a really good question of whether diversity, and inclusion, and open science will be both right now because I think there's these both these viewpoints, and then looking back. Are they at odds with each other? Are they synergizing with each other? Or are they just two different things, right? Those are kind of three ways of viewing it. Um, like right now, there's uh, the journal Psychological Science is looking for a new editor. And there's been a lot of discussion about both open science, because Steve Lindsay um, has done a lot of really good reforms at Psych Science in terms of you know, adopting badges and more disclosure requirements and instituting pre-registered direct replications and, and sort of starting to toy with registered reports. So there's been a lot of really good open science reforms. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion about diversity because <laughs> the journal Psychological Science has only ever had white male cognitivists uh, at the helm. Um, and it's like some some percep of... perception people, not just cognitive, Sanjay. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> try to tell me those are different <laughs> things anyway um and so uh um and so there's just there's also a lot of discussion like okay this journal needs to stop like it needs to to stop being so homogenous in, in who's at the helm and you know there's i've seen some discussion there was a tweet the other day where like because there's an open letter right now of people signing saying that the next editor ought to reform uh, ought to to support open science, and I saw a tweet the other day where someone said yes, but what about diversity? And my you know my thought when I read that was yes, and what about like there's no ten, you know like yeah. women and people of color and non cognitive psychologists care about open science too, but but I think sometimes those things get put in tension but you know Bobby's idea was like actually the diversification of the field is helpful for more open mm -hmm. openness and and you know those things can I don't think there's any reason they have to play nice together I think there's ways in which reforming a field could be reformed in a way that only serves the people who've always been well served anyway but I think there's a great opportunity for those things to um, to enhance each other mm -hmm. the um Sanjay, you mentioned that like the uh, we chose this topic in part based on a letter um, that suggested this is a topic, and the letter asked a couple of questions um, that I think would be really interesting to try to answer. Um, the first question is, if we imagine 10 years from now, and I, I agree that it would be interesting to think about different time durations, um, what do we think will have aged well, and what will we look back on and think like, like wow, that was like... Uh, a silly idea or wow that seems so archaic now or um or like yeah what will seem like totally dated um and I was thinking about that and I I wouldn't necessarily say this and I'm sort of like also getting out of my depth here but I think a lot of the um things like registered reports and discussions of p-hacking and p-curves and all of that kind of stuff, um, pre-registration, a lot of that um, discussion hinges on us continuing to use p-values as like a way of evaluating evidence. Um, and I'm curious, do you guys think that like eventually we'll all become Bayesians and we won't use p-values anymore? Or do you think that, um, this is maybe a controversial question, but do you think p-values <laughs> will stick around? Because you know, if the it were the case that the field just totally switched to Bayesian statistics, then like all of these like adjustments to I mean, not all of them, like some of them are are good um, across the board, regardless of whether we use P values or not. But like some of the some of the changes that are specifically targeted at improving the interpretability and the meaning of p-values would be sort of irrelevant. I think actually very few of them would become irrelevant. I think the redefined significance mm -hmm. would become irrelevant, but yeah, almost right. nothing else, honestly. Like p-curve, 
would be there would be a different version of it so yeah those two things i could imagine becoming irrelevant but yeah my my answer is i think if we switch to bayesian statistics or some other model it won't be because of credibility concerns i think it'll just be a better because it's people decide it's a better statistical approach but not because it's less susceptible to hacking or cherry picking or motivated reasoning or things like that so most of the reforms i think are aimed at those brought more fundamental issues of like confirmation bias and cherry picking and all that so i think they'll like registered reports and pre-registration um and maybe higher standards of evidence and more transparency things like that i think would still be relevant mm-hmm. i have no idea if we'll switch to a different statistical approach Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, it's a really interesting issue. So a parallel that I see is in psychometrics, right? A lot of the classic work in psychometrics uses terms like items. And it's about like when, you t- when someone talks about reliability or validity or whatever, they'll say items because a lot of that work came out of either educational testing or clinical and personality assessment, right? And, and, but the concepts are extremely general. And, you know, the idea of like construct validation, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about items, whether you're talking about response times to trials, whether you're talking about voxels, like a lot of the abstract issues are really general, but people don't necessarily, people working in other areas don't necessarily realize that like the, you know, Kronbach and Meal applies to you know, experimental manipulations and cognitive trials and all that other stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I feel like there there is a risk of something similar because I think what you said, Alexa, is channeling something real, which is that a lot of these reforms are being presented in the in the instantiation that's about p values and that's about a particular sort of like philosophy of science about a sort of quasi falsificationist. You know, I hate the language, I shouldn't say hate, that's too strong. I'm not a fan of the language of confirmatory and exploratory, which has grown up around um, pre-registration. Because I I think that, first of all, confirmatory, like, did we solve the induction problem? Um, And nobody told me, right? Like, we don't confirm shit, right? Like, uh, an exploratory is like me. So confirmatory doesn't mean anything to me, and exploratory means too many things, right? Yeah, I agree. But setting that aside, like... I, I think there are ways in which pre-registration, yeah, it makes it it's still relevant to other philosophies and it's mm-hmm. still relevant to other statistical frameworks. Um, but it at that level, it's so abstract to talk about um, that it's really it's much easier since most people in psychology are using p-values to frame the arguments in terms of p-values and testing. Um, but it, it would be relevant if we were doing estimation. It would be relevant if we were doing Bayes factors or whatever else. Um, and so I, I wonder, like, 10 years from now, one possibility is that um, people might have, and I hope this isn't the case, but one possibility is that people might have boxed a lot of these reforms into a particular statistical framework and a particular philosophy, and we might be there might be whole areas that are missing out on them because they don't realize that the the more abstract issues apply to them. Um, the flip side is maybe we'll have a a better way of of talking about these things. Although it, it is really hard. Like I, I wrote a I have a preprint up where I'm talking about pre registration and I tried to talk about it in language that didn't just tie it into p values or just tie it into a, a sort of testing philosophy. Um, but it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to sort of, that, that's like almost too abstract for our everyday language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are going to have to change, like not necessarily the core of the reform, but either the way it's framed or talked about or implemented or things like that. And I think some of these things, like even already there's things I look back on them like wow I'm embarrassed that I said it that yeah. way or that I only raised the bar that little or things like that yeah, right right and I think that'll happen but I think you know the letter writer makes a good point that it will they may have been useful in their time they may have been necessary stepping stones that we couldn't go from point a to yeah. point z we had to go through the stepping stones and we weren't necessarily aware that they were stepping stones at the time and that that's often the nature of that kind of process but i think that's true for many of the reforms so like sample size is a good example right that like initially people just started talking about needing larger samples then we got more nuance and talk about like power and precision and 
mm-hmm. things like that. And, and, you know, all the caveats around it and so on. But we also, I think, moved the goalposts as we went along in terms of like, you know, like the Simmons, Nelson, Simons and stuff originally recommended, I don't know, 50 per cell or something like that. I think 20, it, was 20. it was 20 initially. Yeah. 20. Then they went to 50 and I wonder <laughs> if now they would go higher, but I mean, obviously it depends on what kinds of effects you're looking for and what kind of design and so on. But I still think like we're still far from the end point on that issue. And and sample size is only one factor that determines your power and precision and so on. Like we need to talk about the reliability of our measures and the, and then like, yeah, the weird issue and all of that. Like, I think mm-hmm. we're still like, we can't quite look directly at the yeah. end point at this point because it's too bright and it's too much. Um, and I th- feel the same way about reforms to the process of peer review. So like, I think it's great that we're talking about like open review and overlay journals and things like that. My guess is the endpoint is gonna look almost unrecognizable from the starting point and that yeah. journals might, we might look back on journals as like, oh, this cute thing that we did before we could do real science or something like that. That's what I want to, that was the next thing that I wanted to like ask you guys was like, do you think that we'll still have journals? Like 10 years maybe is too close, but like mm-hmm. 50 years from now. I don't think we'll have the kind of peer review where you send things to a few people before it's public. I think that uh-huh. that makes that already almost doesn't make any sense to me at this point. What do you think, Sanjay? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it feels um, it feels like it's got to give right like the the idea of journals is a lot of the things that we don't think of in these terms, but they, they're sort of relics of the constraint of print, right? And so, you know, the idea of like an article is a static thing that exists at one point in time. Of course, there are other, you know, there are other reasons why like having an archival version that you can refer to whatever instead of something continually updated. Like, and those are hard problems to solve. Like if you're going to say that an article can be versioned, um, and can change, then you need a technology infrastructure that handles when someone refers to one version and then the article changes and and it becomes another. And I think the, you know, the idea of peer review, as Samin was talking about, um, it sort of makes sense. The the current model or the sort of legacy model of peer review makes sense when journal space is precious. And so you want to kind of it's just efficient to like you can't have everybody publishing everything and and so if someone's you know funding a journal you have to make decisions about what to include what not to include technologically there's no reason we can't distribute everything but then it becomes an attention economy that you know if everybody just self-publishes everything and you know how do you find out what's out there and and you can't read everything so how does stuff rise to the top um and you know do we have like an upvoting reddit system do we have a you know do we have a system where it's like through social media and then you know it it just recapitulates prestige in a new way that now the people with the most followers or the you know you follow the three most important labs in your field and so we just have a, a you know new gloss of paint over a prestige system but, that hasn't actually made things better yeah i don't think that the that's one thing that I think will never go away is some version of a prestige system. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be wrong about that. Um, and I like the idea of getting rid of it, but I th- I just think we're yeah. such suckers for prestige. Yeah, it's that- not going away. I, yeah, I agree totally. I can't imagine how we're going to get rid of journals and how we're going to deal with all these issues. But the beauty of this topic and this question is we can skip the next <laughs> 10 or 20 years and just say, I'm pretty sure right. in a few decades we will think that the way we used to do peer review is really quaint. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I don't know the solutions to those problems, but I anticipate yeah. that we'll try yeah. some and some will work better than others. Um, related question. Do you guys think that we'll still have the same sort of like lab system? Um, I feel like this is, I, I can imagine, let's say 50 years from now thinking that was kind of like, yeah, quaint and sort of insane that like the way that we did studies was like, you know, a group of like three people, a couple of graduate students and like a an advisor and maybe another collaborating lab or something would like do a project with the resource that, that they have available. And then often you're like also constrained by like master's deadlines and dissertation deadlines and stuff like that. Like, I feel like it would be a huge improvement if like 
you know, much like broader scale projects that are more collaborative, things like Psych Science Accelerator is doing and things yeah. like that um, became more the norm. And then like the, you know, requirements for graduate students were more tailored to these kinds of large scale projects. And there's examples of that in other fields where the resources needed are where they know they acknowledge that the resources needed to answer a question or more than a lab can do and i think that's true for at least social psych and maybe personality yeah. psych. for many areas of psych i think we actually need way way more resources than we're ready to admit and it means changing to a completely different model i think right now we think of psych uh -huh. science accelerator as the exception but i think it has to become the rule for for many of the kinds of questions we hope to answer if we want to go beyond mm -hmm. a really narrow conclusion about a really specific subpopulation using a really specific operationalization Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, if you look at like, like if I look at our physics department, there are, there are still labs and like it's, I think it, what's happened is that it's diversified, right? Like it's recognized that there are some problems you can still make progress on in, in a lab structure and there are some that you need large collaborative uh, uh, things. And I, I think that that's probably true. Like, I, you know, a lot of like perception research is heavily within subjects. It's still, you know, it's still feasible to do that within a single lab. And, and I'm, you know, I don't know that field well enough to like have really good predictions, but it wouldn't surprise me if that remains the case for quite a while, that there'll always be some space for some kinds of work that can be done in a single lab, but I think what'll happen is it'll diversify where it'll be better understood that there's more than one way to be a psychologist and that having the kind of single PI lab is just one model right. and that's that's sort of like, it's good if you're working on those kind of problems and it's not good if you're but not. I and right. I think a big part of why social psychology has been at the center of a lot of this is that we assumed that the model that works for like low level cognition problems works for really complex interpersonal behaviors. Yeah. And I think that there's very, few not very few but many social psych questions will require much more complex designs and methods and stuff than what a typical lab mm -hmm. can do well yeah the other um i'm now wondering if we should explain what psych science accelerator is because i'm not sure if we've talked about it before um so i my understanding of the way that it works is that uh psychologists vote on the questions that they want to pursue um and then team up as like multiple labs to address that question. Is that right? Um, and the other thing that I think is cool about that model is there's also some requirement for consensus in terms of what research questions are chosen as like worth devoting resources to. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I, like I would like a system that prevents people from doing weird research on stuff that nobody else cares about. But I do like that aspect that there's some discussion about like, what should we, what should psychologists be spending their time on and what should be teaming, we be teaming up to address? Yeah. Yeah. We should, I'll, uh, I just made a note to, to Hannah Moshans has an article in AMPS about the accelerator, I think, and I'll, we should link that in our show notes. I, yeah, great. I just finished reading a book by a cosmologist. I'll, maybe I'll, I might write a blog post better. I want I have a lot more to say about it, but it's interesting because it's a similar situation where like to detect like the beginnings of the universe, they need like huge collaborative projects with like really, really large equipment and expensive stuff. But you also need some people to try the like very unlikely to work thing. And it's hard mm -hmm. to decide to devote that much time and resources and stuff to the really unlikely to work thing. So it's it's a really interesting, I think other fields have dealt with this. So we probably, I think the first step is for us to acknowledge that some of our questions are just as hard and yeah. resource intensive as those fields. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. we can learn about how other fields have dealt with it. So something, something we were talking about earlier and I wanna come back to maybe in a more general sense. I, um, we talked about pre-registration earlier and so I, I have a I have a worry sometimes about pre-registration. I want to kind of generalize this to reforms more generally, which is that my my worry about a possible future is that we're going to do something but badly, and that mm -hmm. uh, um, <clears throat> in a sense, like you see this with statistics, where people have these arguments about like is is our p-values fundamentally flawed, or is it there's a right way to do it, and it's just that nobody does it. Like we should all be doing correct Nyman Pearson you know, 
decision rules, blah, blah, blah. And we're, we're not, we're, we're using them poorly. And that, you know, P hacking is a problem, not because it's not inherent. It's like an, an incorrect use of P values, right? You're, you're not supposed to be doing these things. And we've known you're not supposed to be doing these things, but people are doing them anyway. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. And my, my worry is sometimes with certain reforms, things like pre-registration, um, but I want to ask what you guys think if if there are other things that you think this could apply to too, as well as if you think this is likely. It's like we'll start doing pre-registration, but we'll do it poorly. Mm-hmm. So, or we won't do it in a way that does. Like it'll just be a rote de facto. You write down a bunch of stuff, but you leave yourself enough flexibility that you can say you pre-registered, but mm-hmm. you're not actually doing the the. I mean, there's multiple things that pre-registration can do, but if you're talking about like avoiding capitalizing on chance and mm-hmm. generating false positives, or whatever statistical framework you're talking about, uh, biased estimates or whatever, um, uh, that yeah, we'll we'll just we'll do the the superficial version of it to say we follow the reform, and and I wonder what you what you guys think of that, if that's. Like I, th- I think that's a possible future, but how likely do you think it is? And are there other th- reforms like that that you worry that we're gonna do the, um, we're gonna we're gonna do the appearance of doing them without actually doing them in ways that serve their goals? Yeah, I think that concern applies to all forms of transparency, and I think of pre-registration mm-hmm. as a form of transparency, right? Pre-registration is a saying, "Don't take my word that I plan this. I will let you verify that I plan this." Um, that's one of the functions of pre-registration. So I see it as under the umbrella of openness and sharing and transparency. And I think you could do that, you know, do the follow the letter of the law, but not the spirit or whatever with other kinds of transparency mm-hmm. too, like sharing your data, but in a way that makes it really, really hard for other people to understand it or understand what you did, mm-hmm. things like that. And that's my biggest concern. So if I, if I project 10 or 20 years into the future and look back, I think the really big fork in the road for this movement is going to be whether we're satisfied with just changing behavior or whether we're able to change the culture and the mindset and like the hearts and minds of get people to buy into why these behaviors are important. Because I think if you're pre-registering just to satisfy some journal's requirement or the reviewers or whatever, you're going to do it less well. It's going to fulfill its purpose less well than if you understand why letting others verify what you planned and what you didn't and when you made which decisions, why that's important. Um, and I, I worry. So I see the movement going more and more towards just being satisfied with behavior and less and less. Right, towards, yeah. like we used to call it scientific integrity and we stopped doing that. And I, I thought that was, that was the right move to stop calling it that because it sounded self-righteous. But now I regret that move. I think it is a question of integrity. Th- that's what's at stake. And so just getting people to check the box or go through the motions is not enough. And we might go... I, sometimes it's useful to frame it as just a behavior to avoid like in-group, out-group mentality and things like that. But sometimes I think we sacrifice a lot if we talk about just about doing the behavior and that, look, these people get kudos just because they pre-registered. Well, no, the point, the reason you get credit for pre-registering is that you're taking a risk that other people will find out that actually you capitalize on chance or your conclusions are not solid. So if you're not, if we're not using that, if we're not holding people accountable then you get no credit for pre-registration that's what it's for and if people don't understand that's one of the key motivating factors behind pre-registration then just uh-huh. getting the behavior is going to be pretty disappointing it's not going to change very much about the credibility of our field right and i think that that's like one reason why i feel like more excited about some kinds of change than others because i feel like i feel like the changes that are Um, creating new requirements for people to do things that, like you're saying, like that incentivize changing the behavior. Um, I think that's, they're good. They're better than not having them. Um, But the better changes I think are, are the more systemic changes that aim at shifting people's incentives, right? So like, I'm more excited about the idea of a registered report than that I am about a journal requiring pre-registration, for instance, because like a registered report frees people to now be like, um, really to be agnostic about the results of their paper. That's only true if the editor handling the registered report understands deeply the reasons why there's stage one and stage two and why, because if the editor doesn't get it, if the editor's going through the motions, or if the editor's like, oh, 
cool, some journals are doing this, let's do this too, but doesn't really get it, then they're going to ask authors to change things in stage two that they shouldn't, or they're going to let reviewers make demands that are unrealistic or some things that defeat the purpose of registered reports. So in that case, like the person going through the motions and not really understanding the reason behind it, the risk is with the editor rather than... Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I, reviewers, I agree. But, yeah. And I worry mm-hmm. that when we scale up registered reports and it's not Chris Chambers handling all of them, that right. it's going to be an issue. I, I want, I mean, registered reports are probably the reform I'm most excited about too, but I think it's so important that the people implementing them understand what the purpose is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and th- this is where I feel like there's there's good scholarship on, like, good methodological, meta-scientific, philosophical, whatever you want to call it, scholarship on a lot of these things. Pre-registration is an example that's not just like do this, but that that's sort of talking about the principles why, and there's room for so much more. And I think one of the things that gives me some reassurance is seeing journals like MetaScience or AMPS or others cropping up as places for people to do the scholarship. Because that, that's where I think, you know, it's the, the accountability and the possibility of criticism that makes it uh, a possibility. And, and you know, so an, an analogy I think of is like causal inference, right? So we know that there are certain things that randomized experiments can do well. We know that some of those things, if you just correlate cross-sectionally to variables and say X caused Y, that that's not very good. And that there's like a middle ground where you're doing causal modeling and things like that. Um, and the what that does is like we, you know, we've known this stuff for a long time, and there you still see <laughs> articles published where someone cross-sectionally correlated two variables, um, but talked like X caused Y, um, and so it, that never went away. But there there's a push pull, and people have a language. And they have a, a scholarly framework to critique that. And of course, there's we never stop having battles over, you know, longitudinal causal modeling and you know instrumental variables and all the other things that are sort of in that middle ground. But at least there's a language, and it's considered a legitimate area for critique, right? So, so yes, you can still get a correlation published and say X caused Y, but the world, there's at least the possibility you're going to get criticized for it. And I I suspect that's where a lot of this is going to end up too, that like people are still going to be able to publish work that either isn't pre-registered or is pre-registered, but not in ways that do what you would claim a pre-registration is doing. Um, But that if the, the more scholarship there is, the more language we have, the more of a norm there is that this is a thing that you can criticize people for, the better chance there is of at least that stuff will be contained. Um, it won't. Uh, I don't think it's going to go away, but I think it'll it'll maybe look kind of similar to to the way causation looks now. And I can't help mm-hmm. but add Collabra is another place where you can publish that kind of paper. There's a method. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think like taking a step back, if if the reform movement succeeds, and maybe the if isn't needed at this point, I don't know, but if 10 or 20 years from now we still think this was a movement that made a difference and that things improved mm-hmm. because of this movement i think arguably the most important lesson at least for me will be that the status quo can be changed by a group of second stringers i think that's like the mentality that i w- hope sticks beyond even if this movement ends or whatever there's an end point and ironically dan gilbert gave us that narrative by calling, you know, the authors who published your application very early on second stringers. But I think that that's where I, that's also what I, this connection I see with the diversity and inclusion issue that like, I want to, if, if I, the, the change I want to stick the most is this idea that you can challenge the status quo, that just because something's always been done a certain way, doesn't mean it can, has to continue to be done that way. That when there's a corruption or abuse of power or bias or things like that, that we can call it out and we can change it. Even if the people calling it out and trying to change it are not, the high status people with a lot of power. And I think the reason why sometimes there's a perception of tension between the open science movement or replicability movement and like diversity and inclusion issues and things like that is because probably it's not a coincidence that the second stringers initially, not literally the authors of that paper, but that the movement, the like kind of initial push in the movement was probably mostly people who do come from more privilege because you can afford to be the challenge of status quo more if you have more privilege. But I hope the lesson is that 
other people should use their voice too. And when you see something that's a bad practice or that's become the status quo and everyone's accepted it, but actually it shouldn't be that way, whether it's anybody's fault that it's that way or not, that we can try to change it and we can sometimes succeed. And maybe we can learn lessons about what makes it more or less likely to succeed from this and other movements. But that's what I would really hope will stick if this, if the, this movement succeeds. Mm-hmm. That, is that a good place to end on? <laughs> I was going to say, like, I'm not going to say anything more inspiring than that. So, <laughs> how do you, <laughs> how do you it's like that? the Margaret Mead quote never doubt that a small group of second stringers can change the field. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a big group yeah. now. Great. Well, awesome. That's, yeah, maybe optimism. Now, wait. I, this does feel a little odd that like we're ending on optimism, but it was Samin's optimism. <laughs> I said Isn't if that, the movement uh, succeeds. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, uh, thanks, guys. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening um, to The Black Goat. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.